Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Take your Bibles and turn there. We are making our way through the Sermon on the Mount and uh, enjoying it. I trust you're growing and developing as much as I am learning so much here, getting such a fuller understanding of what uh, our Lord was communicating at the Sermon on the Mount. So famous, and sometimes uh, it seems that our familiarity hurts us when we come to these passages and that's been the case with me. I know in my study here, it's just familiar territory that I've really missed the weight and the influence of what we find. And uh, just a rich blessing to be studying uh, through this section. Uh, this last week, if you were with us, um, we studied just verse 1 of chapter 6, kind of to set the table for our time together for the remaining uh, weeks. Uh, we're going to spend several weeks now going through examples of the principle that was outlined in verse 1. And that big overarching principle was that the believer is to um, participate in public worship, public displays of worship in such a way as not to seek their own fame or their own um, accolades uh, because the result of that will be that they lose any reward that they would have from their father. So it's a strong statement against hypocrisy. It's a strong statement in verse 1 against externalism in the church and in the worship of God, which would have been such a danger in the uh, Jewish religious system. And yet I don't think it is much less of a danger in our own present um, religious or religiosity that we go through here even as followers of Christ. This is still a danger. There's a typical setting in which we'll find this danger, and that is when we're publicly together working out our righteousness that God has worked in us. He's changed our hearts, and uh, there is a very real danger and temptation that is there lurking even now and even this morning. It has been a temptation for us. It has been a danger for us, and I trust that you have taken the warning from the Lord himself. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. What a, what a strong and profound statement that is for the life of worship for the believer. Now, in the remaining paragraphs then, beginning in verse 2 through verse 4, which is what we'll look at today, and then picking up in verse 5 all the way through 15, and then concluding in verses 16 through 18, we're going to find three illustrations or three examples that Christ highlights to show how this would flesh itself out, how this principle of not doing things to be noticed, not living your Christian life to be seen by others, to be acknowledged or rewarded by others, how that looks practically. And that's helpful. I mean, it would be hard enough if we had just come in contact with verse 1. It is quite a blessing for us to have these paragraphs to outline for us and to give us a feel for what it actually looks like when that principle, which drives our thinking and our lives, takes flesh and is lived out. So today, in verses 2 through 4, we'll look at this principle as it regards to our giving. And for those of you who are visiting, I didn't pick a passage on giving for Mother's Day. Uh, this is just in God's providence what we're coming to. Next week, we'll begin our study of prayer, which is falling right in this same context. Um, and we're going to spend a little bit of extra time because we find here the Lord's Prayer, which I think demands our attention, and uh, the life of prayer for the believer I don't know about you, but it seems to me that there are a couple things that are universally convicting as Christians. If we want to talk about things that we all feel like we're not where we should be, prayer's got to be up there at the top of the list. And so when we get into prayer, 
It particularly in this context is a study of prayer without hypocrisy, but it will also be an opportunity for us to examine our own prayer lives and to see what it is that the Lord has to say about prayer. And then he'll conclude these illustrations or examples in verses 16 through 18, dealing with the issue of fasting, which is uh, not something that is as popular or as well-known or as well-practiced probably in our culture, and yet something that we'll see is very important and has a real benefit for those who follow Christ. The theme here of these verses is battling hypocrisy, and that's why we've titled this section Kingdom Credibility. Kingdom Credibility. There is an examination now after the demands of the kingdom in chapter 5, and all those realities that we saw were to be a part of our existence. All the obedience that is demanded of us, the perfect standard of Christ himself, all of that is set up, and now Christ backs that up with a warning that we be the real deal. That we do not let hypocrisy seep into our pursuit as kingdom citizens of reflecting the character and quality of our king. And hypocrisy takes on a lot of different forms. Okay? There are many ways that hypocrisy could be seen in your life or in my life, or you have seen it, and this is probably more uh, applicable. We see hypocrisy in the lives of others. It's one of those traits that is easily noticed in others and very difficult to notice in yourself because by nature hypocrisy is an act of pride hypocrisy at times is the total con artist that we talked about last week who knows that he is not what he says he is she knows she is not selling you the product she's telling you she's going to sell you and it is a hypocrisy that is bold and brazen and is deceitful to the core There's another kind of hypocrisy that is probably more subtle, and that is the individual who wants to do the right thing, who desires to be about the right practice, and yet finds themselves internally motivated by really an attention for themselves. And so what we're going to find this morning is those who actually give of their resources for the needs of others can at the same time be desperately wanting more than anything else to be noticed. So selflessness in hypocrisy can be matched up directly with selfishness. It can be those who are interacting with the God of the universe in prayer, who can be more concerned in the moment of communication with the God who created them, they can be more concerned with people realizing that they're communicating with God than they are actually aware that they're in the presence of Yahweh himself. And those who fast who set aside their personal needs, their physical desires, for a period of time to give themselves entirely to focus on the Lord, can be doing that all the while, wanting to be sure that others recognize how committed they are and how much they've sacrificed for the cause of God. This is an amazing reality. It's not something that's shocking to us because we all see it in our own lives and we've seen it in the lives of others. And yet this kind of hypocrisy is much more subtle. It is much more deceiving because it comes in the form of righteous deeds. It comes in the form of good behavior. That's the most dangerous sort of hypocrisy. It's doing the right thing with the wrong heart. And it props you up for a miserable failure And it brings the strong warning of our Lord in verse 1. Hypocrisy, the word hypocrite, actually comes from an old Greek word that actually was used to describe 
actors on a stage. And in the old times of actors in the Roman culture, they didn't have elaborate stage rooms. They didn't have elaborate costumes and green rooms where you would go and make up artists that had huge lamps, oil lamps burning real brightly with a mirror there. And they prepped you and did you right. And, and they didn't have the box that said go and tape all of that. What they did have was they could use different voices and they would put on a different little face and hold it in front of theirs and change their voice. And oftentimes the theater was dominated by men. So men would play women in the play using a falsetto voice, using a wig or some decorative element that was supposed to portray them as a woman. And the hypocrite was one who presented himself as one thing while it was quite obvious that that was not actually true of the individual who was portraying it. It's no different when we come to the use of that term here in our text. This is the disguising of what is true on the inside by righteous action on the outside. On Mother's Day, as I think about hypocrisy, I can think of no greater act in my own life of putting on the outside what was not true on the inside than my sophomore year of high school when my precious mom, who wanted me so desperately to be in theater, convinced and prevailed upon me that I should join the school play, the high school play. I really tried to go for lights and sound I mean, audiovisual. come on, Mom, I'm behind the scenes, it'll be neat. You'll know when I'm there because I'll turn on the purple light and all that kind of thing. No, wanted me to be in the play. Um, you're such a good actor, you're such a ham at home, you should be in a play. So I finally cave in, and what part did I get? I had to dress up in green leotards and play a monkey who played a guitar. Now recently, there's a website that connects you with students from your school called Facebook, and, and recently on the Facebook page of my high school that I was at at the time, they put this on the website. You can see the green monkey for yourself if I told you what the name of the school was, but I'm not going to. I sat there in utter humiliation. I played these notes. I had to dance around like I was a monkey. This physique is not built for tights, okay? Um, these long legs were never intended to be in green leotards, I was meant to be in baggy shorts with a round leather ball. That's what God made me to do. There I was. Obviously not, before everyone there to their great humor, obviously not what they knew was true behind the ridiculous monkey mask that I had to wear for that entire hypocritical display. Probably my uh, reasoning was even hypocritical in the moment. But that's the very picture of what we have here. Something is on the outside that does not accurately portray what's on the inside. And in this case, it's righteous activity on the outside that doesn't portray what is truly the intent of the heart on the inside. And this is so much more serious, so much more deadly than we like to think. John Stott says this, it's easy for us to poke fun at those Jewish Pharisees of the first century, right? We know about the Pharisees. We know they were the hypocrite of hypocrites. And we talk about them, and we can even smile and say, can you believe it, they wore big bells on their clothes so that when they walked by, you had to look, you had to know they were there because they were ringing as they walked by you. And we laugh and we smile. And Stott says, our Christian Pharisaism is not so amusing. We may not employ a troop of trumpeters, which we're going to read about, to blow a fanfare each time we give to a church or a charity. Yet to us, the familiar metaphor we like to blow our own trumpet. 
It boosts our ego to see our name as subscribers to charities and supporters of good causes. We fall to the very same temptation. We draw attention to our giving in order to be praised by men. This is the topic that we'll address this morning. Now, in trying to look at this kingdom credibility as it pertains to giving, we've divided this up, and really this section, these three verses that we're going to look at this morning are pretty simple for us, I think, to understand at face value. So just to help us get a grasp of these verses, I provided this outline. We're going to start with the assumed public activity, which is the giving. We'll talk about that for a minute. And then there are just parallel ideas that are given to us. We have the hypocritical motivation and the hypocritical reward. And then we see the kingdom motivation and the kingdom reward. Okay, so real simple. We're basically just going to contrast the hypocrite and the kingdom citizen. And we're going to keep doing this for weeks on end. We're going to look at the hypocritical motivation which results in a hypocritical reward, which will be sad to see. And then we're going to examine the kingdom motivation. What is it that we are to be about? And the kingdom reward, what is the result of the proper way we live out our righteousness before others? Okay? All that brings us to verse 2, and let's read it together if you have your copy of the Word in your lap. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who is in secret, will reward you. We begin then in verse 2 with that very first phrase, Thus, when you give to the needy. And we'll see to kind of be the overarching theme, the assumed public activity. What is the righteousness that is assumed to be a part of your existence as a kingdom citizen? What did Jesus assume of the nation of Israel, even under the old covenant? What did he assume was a part of their thinking? And in translation, what does he assume is a part of those who are in the family of Grace Church of the Valley? He assumes at the very beginning of verse 2 that you are giving to those who need it. That's the assumption. This is the activity that we're going to examine. The assumption is you are active, not passive, in providing for the needs of others. It's an assumed reality for the life and the heartbeat of those who follow Christ. Now to put it in context for those who are actually listening there, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Let's just see how familiar they would have been with this concept as it pertains to giving. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 11. We'll find this in the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 11. Moses says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, God commands you, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So there are three different categories that were assumed to be part of your generosity as a member of the nation of Israel in covenant with God under the law of Moses. You are to open your hand because need will never cease to be. So you're to open your hand to your brother, that is to those that are a part of your household and your nation. You are to open your hand to the needy, those who are desperately in need, and to the poor, those who are in a permanent state of need. So you have three groups of people. 
You have those closest to you. You have those that are not as close to you but have a seemingly temporary need and you, you meet that need. And then you have this group of people, this class of people that are permanently in need. And you are to be opening your hands to all three. We do okay with the first one. We get that. Opening our hand to our family. Being careful to give to those that we know and love. Who we know have need for money or for resources. We do okay probably with the second one. If there's a temporary need and we find out about it. And we have the means to take care of that need. We'll probably be faithful to do it. And that third class is a particular challenge to us. Because we are really struggling with those who are permanently in a state of poverty. How is it that we live out this clear command from God's word? That was the address that he was giving. In Psalm 41, verse 1, we see the same reality. The Old Testament scriptures, Blessed is the one, happy is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. You do not give up to the will of his enemies. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. So blessing is showered on the one who did not turn away and who considered the poor. Psalm 41, verse 1. Then over in Proverbs, where we've already been this morning, Proverbs chapter 19, see one final reference to this reality. Proverbs chapter 19. Speaking much of the poor man, in verse 17 it says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Isn't that an amazing truth? Whoever gives to the poor lends to the Lord. It's as if you have said, I'm, making a, uh, I'm taking the opportunity, and Lord, I'm going to entrust some money to you, knowing that you will give that back. The Lord will repay him. Whether it's now or whether it is in eternity, he will be repaid from the Lord himself if he gives himself to providing for those who are in need. James, in the New Testament, the oldest of the New Testament books, the letter from James in chapter 1, if anyone thinks, verse 26 says, he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, which is exactly what we're talking about, God the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So twofold, true, undefiled religion is embodied in caring for those who have no means of caring for themselves. And if you've been with us, we've studied this in adult Sunday school. The orphans and widows of New Testament times were desperately in need of the church's help. So those who would follow Christ are assumed to be practicing giving for those who are in need. That is the the simple message of the first part of verse 2 in Matthew chapter 6. That's the assumed public activity. Now, let's not, let's not race too fast past this. That's one of those phrases, isn't it, that we would just read really quick. If you got to Matthew 6 in your reading of your Bible, and uh, you were plotting through this, maybe you're reading 5 and 6, and so you get to the end of 5, you hit into 6, and you go, oh yeah, this is where we're in church. We're studying this. And you get to verse 2, and he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. You just blast past when you give to the needy. And yet I think it probably should stop us short and help us ask a question of our own lives. Right here at the beginning. It's important for us to ask, 
before we assume it of ourselves, are we consistently active in this assumption that the Lord makes about his people? Are you individually and as a family, am I individually and as a family, are we faithfully living out this assumed reality? Are we actually practically, tangibly meeting the needs of others that we know are in need? Are we doing so with those who don't know Christ with an eye to share the truth with them, which is a proper motivation? Are we doing so with those who know Christ as a means of encouragement and with an eye to being an opportunity for God to use us to provide for their needs to answer prayer, which is a proper motivation? Is this actually taking part in our lives? Is this a part of our existence? Or are we just upper middle class American citizens that just hoard wealth, get new things? How practical are we when it comes to the needs of others? How much do we try to know the needs of others? Is ignorance bliss for you when it comes to giving? The only way you know someone has a need when some person that you don't know knocks on your window or holds a sign up that says something about the Vietnam War? Is that the only time that you know there's a need that you could potentially meet? The whole point of this example and the whole point of this whole section is not just to place an emphasis on our activity. Okay, This is the backdrop because giving to the poor, though it is an assumed reality, is not good in and of itself. This is not a righteous activity inherently. There's no way you get to check off your giving box just because you gave. That's the, that's the weight of the kingdom. That's the weight of the emphasis from our Lord Jesus himself here in these verses. Giving to the poor does not have some inherent goodness or quality of righteousness, but rather Jesus focuses on the heart of the giver, which will provide the quality of the activity. Listen to this from Donald Carson, his comments on this section. Clearly, Jesus is not opposed to giving. Indeed, he presupposes that his followers will give. But his followers, whose goal is perfection, must not delude themselves into thinking that all giving pleases him, or that giving per se is an act of righteousness. The human heart is too crafty to allow so simple a suggestion to stand. It's too deceitful. Your motivations are too directly connected to the principle of sin which remains in you until you are glorified in the presence of the Lord. And so we find this is our assumed practice. This is the outward activity. But that's really just the front runner to what we're going to see in the remainder of these verses. This contrastive idea of both the hypocrite and the kingdom. The hypocrite and the kingdom. That's what we want to see from the remainder of these verses. So let's look first at the hypocrite. Who is the hypocrite? What's he think like? What's his reward? What is it that we find to be true in verse 2 about the hypocrite? Well, when you are giving, when you're practicing this assumed public activity, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. The hypocrisy 
of that day was much more grand, much more loud and in your face than probably the hypocrisy that we would practice in our culture today. They would actually blow trumpets to let people know that there was a particular opportunity to give. Maybe there was an announcement made in the culture, or in the community rather, and an announcement that there was going to be a receiving of a particular alms giving or needy giving, charitable giving for the sake of the poor. And on the certain day when that would happen, there would be a trumpet blast that would be the sign or the, the signal that it was time to come and give your gifts. The picture here that historians give us is when the, when the trumpets would sound in the streets and in the synagogues, the people who were most concerned to be noticed would race out of their shop, close up, run down the street, make it very obvious that they were first in line. They were running because they wanted to be noticed in their giving. Jesus says, don't set up your trumpeteers. Don't set up your town criers to let everybody know that you are about to give to the needy. That is not what the kingdom is about. That's what the hypocrite is all about. That's the hypocritical motivation. The forbidden motivation is clear. It was to be noticed by men. And that was the truth in verse 1 in the grand warning that we saw last week. The vanity and hypocritical motivation is absolutely forbidden for the kingdom citizen. And the hypocrisy here is that deceiving hypocrisy. It looks right. It sounds right. I mean, if you found out that somebody gave thousands of dollars or that they gave a bunch of their time or they gave a bunch of their possessions to a charitable organization that met the needs of the poor in our culture and society, that sounds good. That's all right on the surface. And yet two people could be doing that. One could be storing up wrath on the day of judgment and one could be storing up an eternal reward all because of the heart with which they did it and the motivation that drove them to do it. The hypocrite here makes much of his righteous activity, which undermines the righteousness of his righteous activity and leaves him empty-handed before God. So the motivation is exposed. Sound no trumpet. This is what the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Why? That they may be praised by others. That they may be praised by others. I don't need to ask the application questions. The Holy Spirit has provided more than enough for you to ask the hard questions here about your activity with those who are in need, your giving of resources, your giving of time, your giving of yourself or your money or whatever it is to help those who have needs. Is it being done to bring glory to your Father in heaven? Or is it being done to be praised by men? How quickly we cross that line. What may begin with the motivation of bringing honor to God, to being done for His attention, for His glory, for Him to be magnified, can so quickly turn in just a moment to being for our glory. Sadly, I've recently had the opportunity to see this played out in my own life. And this, this has been on my mind, knowing that this passage was coming. An activity that had been going on in secret for a number of years, a number of days, the same activity that was being done to provide for a need that was made known to me, I made it known to someone else that I was meeting that need. 
And in the moment that I said it, it undermined the very core of what I know to be the case when it comes to the character of Christ. They didn't need to know that. The only reason it came out of my mouth was for this reason. And it was an expression not of the character of my Lord, not in submission and obedience as His grace has supplied for me at the cross, but in obedience to the principle of sin that wars within me. That they may be praised by others so that someone will say, wow, you are something else. Even if it's the person who received your gift, your motivation can be wrong. Folks, this is a challenge because this is the kingdom. This is what we live in. This is who we live under. This is our king laying out his requirements and his warnings for our lives and giving as an end in of itself will not do and giving with the end being the praise of man will not do. It's not good enough. There isn't inherent righteousness in the activity. So we see the assumed activity is giving to the needy, which already is convicting. Then we see the dangerous potential motivation that the hypocrite has. And then finally in verse 2, he ends up by telling us not just the motivation of the hypocrite, but the hypocritical reward as well. And that is the saddest part of verse 2. After blowing the trumpets, after making loud noises to make sure that everyone saw and praised them for their gifts to the poor, we find at the end of verse 2, truly I say to you, they received their reward. This is a positive statement that brings a negative truth home in an amazing way. Jesus is on the mountain. There are all the people who know the necessity of giving for the needs of others, for caring for the poor. And Jesus says, if it's done with this motivation, the reward has stopped when men praised you. It doesn't go any further. There isn't anything else to expect. There isn't any eternal quality to your reward. Just a temporal, man-centered, selfish reward. That's all there will ever be. Whatever is gained by way of praise from men is all you're going to get. That's tragic because that's not why kingdom citizens exist. We don't exist for the temporal. We don't exist for the immediate. We don't exist for ourselves. We have laid aside ourselves. We have died to ourselves. We have taken up our cross and we follow our king. We are about him. We want him. Him to be made large. We want Him to be praised. We want Him to be magnified and glorified before the world around us. The great result for us, we'll see in just a few minutes, is an eternal reward, not a temporal praise from men. The kingdom and the kingdom citizen, the kingdom citizen is the real deal. I mean, there's a lot of talk today. I don't know how much you read in popular Christian writing. There's a lot of jargon that's thrown around. And one of the buzzwords today is authenticity. Authenticity. And I, I love that word. In fact, I love the concept and I love the idea as long as it comes into conformity with what Scripture teaches us. Authenticity is biting on the gold to make sure that that's actually what it looks like it is. The believer is authentic. What you see on the outside is what's representing what's on the inside. They're an open book. This is what the kingdom is all about. It's the real deal. Not a phony, um, counterfeit, fake righteousness. 
that we put on and take off. So we have the assumed practice, then we have the hypocritical motivation, and finally in verse 2 we see that hypocritical reward, and it is a death knell for the hypocrite. If this is your life in a nutshell, trying to do righteous deeds to gain your own merit, your own righteousness, and the favor of men, you will end your life with your one lasting reward, being that you got the praise of men. And your eternal reward will be a punishment apart from the one with whom Hebrews says you have to do. In contrast to that, Jesus turns the corner and he focuses us not on the negative so much of the hypocrite, but on the positive of his kingdom citizens. And in verse 3, you find two little key words that really set this verse apart from the previous one. But when you give to the needy. But when. One is a contrast in ideas, but as the opposite of what we've just talked about, and when, as your time to give comes, you are to be set apart, you are to be different. There is a difference in the kingdom motivation, and there subsequently is a difference in the kingdom reward. Here's the kingdom contrast that we find in verse 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your reward may be in secret, or so that your giving, rather, may be in secret. Jesus uses a radical and impossible illustration to paint a picture of how concerned we're to be with the singular audience for our outward public activities of righteousness. He doesn't condemn giving. He doesn't condemn righteousness on our parts. He promotes it. He assumes it. And then he outlines for us the way in which it is to be carried out. And the way it is to be carried out is in a matter that is so private and so secretive that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand just did. Your left hand's out there waiting, wondering what's going on over on the right side, because your right side's giving to the needs of others. It's a powerful word picture. It's hyperbole. It's an extreme. It's impossible. And yet that's the standard that Jesus gives us for the motivation that should drive us. We are acting not on our own or for our own praise or for the attention of men, but rather we're doing what we're doing in secret because our motivation focuses and centers not on us, but on God himself. The left hand and the right hand give us a picture of secrecy and low-profile service, and this is the name of the game the kingdom this is the name of the game low profile secretive service this is what we just listened to during the offering i want you to be the focus i want to serve you in secret and never be noticed are we willing to give our lives give our time give our resources give our finances for the kingdom causes and for the provision of those who are poor and needy without anybody ever knowing we did it ever Well, just maybe one or two people would be nice. Just somebody, even if it's your spouse. Just just the affirmation that somebody knows. Well, somebody does know if it's done in secret. And that's what verse 4 tells you. If your giving is done in secret, there's only one person who notices it. And it's God himself. This is the kingdom reward. 
We see the kingdom motivation is secrecy because it is not about me, it's about God, and the kingdom reward flows directly from that at the end of verse 4, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It'd be nice to have some encouragement. I mean, I'm giving seemingly unendingly to this need of these people. It's being noticed if it's done in secret from a heart that desires God to be magnified and glorified through your life. In your public display, God sees what is done in secret. Now notice that the word and starts that sentence there at the end of verse 4. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And that's important because this is the result of secret activity. It's not the driving motivation for secret activity. The motivation is to glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what we find back in Matthew chapter 5, right? The salt and light. That's why we do what we do, is to bring honor and glory to Him by putting on display His character and His qualities. And the result will be He will reward you for what is done in secret. So the complexity of our self-deception gets even one layer thicker because we can deceive ourselves so much that we buy into the reality that an eternal reward is better So now we're doing it in secret and we're trying to be private about it because we really want to get God's reward more than we want to get the secondary man's reward. And yet that's the result. It's not outlined for us as the driving centerpiece of why we do what we do. One other thing came to mind as I studied verse 4. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. And that is this. I, I don't know about you, but the idea of God seeing in secret is always a negative connotation in my existence. It's always been a negative idea. It's always been a fear idea, really. Whatever sin you commit in secret, he knows about it. There's no room that's dark enough. There's no door that's thick enough. There's no place that's off the beaten path enough that God didn't see what you did. It's the myth of privacy. It's the myth of thinking that you're alone. It's the myth of thinking that you and your computer are just there and there's nobody else there. There is the one there who is most important. That's a a truth from Scripture. That's obviously a truth. And yet here, for the kingdom citizen, it's not a negative. It's a comfort. It's a positive that God is there. He sees it. He's not unaware. What goes unchecked in this life, what goes unrewarded, unappreciated, unrecognized in this life, it is done with the motivation of the kingdom. It is not unnoticed because he's there. He's in secret. He sees what is done in private. He sees the activity. He sees the motivation of your heart. He's the one we should be concerned about and we can be assured he is there watching, noticing, and seeing. The believer's comfort is found in knowing that those outward acts done in secret worship bring glory to God and will be rewarded throughout eternity in His presence. That is your comfort. That is your joy. That is your reward. Okay? You see the hypocrite versus the kingdom citizen. The kingdom citizen always wins. The hypocrite always loses. The kingdom citizen always reflects as the pattern of his life, the character and the nature and the the very image of his Savior and of his King. The hypocrite portrays some fruit, some outward external fruit of the character of the King, 
and yet he has no inward relationship. His motivation is strictly forbidden by the king, and he stands actually in opposition to the king and the kingdom itself. For he is attempting to steal from the king the glory that is due. That's what we find here. And this is the first of these three examples that Jesus uses with that warning that we be careful not to practice in order to be seen by men. And it is a real gut check for us. Are we even in the game of giving to the needy? Secondly, are we giving to the needy with the wrong motivation, which provides no eternal reward? And thirdly, can we set our pattern of life, give ourselves entirely to a secrecy about our public worship that would provide God with the only means of knowing what it is exactly that we're doing? The heart lifestyle of this kind of credibility, this kingdom credibility, is only possible for those who have experienced the reality of Matthew 5, 3 through 10. And that's why we've got to be careful pulling sections of the Sermon on the Mount out from the whole. This is for the kingdom. This is for the kingdom citizen. This is impossible for Mother Teresa, if she's not a part of the kingdom, to carry out. This is impossible for some monk who has given everything he has but is deceived and is living by the basis of earning merit on his own to bring him closer to God. This is impossible. This cannot happen. There can be secrecy. There can be giving. All these things can be taking place. And unless the heart has been transformed by new birth, John 3 tells us, there is no life. This will result in no eternal reward from God himself. Okay? So what's the application? Let's break this down to maybe just some big overarching application to help us. Believer, if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, you are in Christ, you have come to place your faith in Him, turning from your sin, giving for the needs of others is an assumed part of your existence. It is an assumed part of your Christian existence, but it is not good enough to just give Only good giving will do. And good giving is giving that is directed by a motivation for God to receive the glory. And which results in an eternal reward from the Father. Okay? So that's for you, believer. Unbeliever, you're here this morning. You don't know Christ. You've never turned from your own way. You've never placed your faith and confidence in Christ. Your life bears no fruit. Though you may even profess to believe the right facts, there's no evidence, no assurance of that actually being true from a heart standpoint in your actions. You're an unbeliever. You're here this morning. You can never be good enough in giving to the poor to earn one ounce of righteousness with God. Period. And I say that with the utmost concern and love for you this morning. You're here. You're under the sound of the written, perfect word of God. And this passage should condemn you. As unpopular as that is, it should condemn you. It drives you further to your understanding that you need a Savior because you cannot carry this out on your own. And so, unbeliever, you can't be good enough in your giving to earn the reward of the Father. And that's bad news. That is bad news for you. Because to not earn a reward from the Father... To not be seen by the Father 
in a loving sense, a salvific sense, is to spend an eternity apart from the Father, apart from Christ, in eternal torment. That's bad news. That's condemning. That's specifically condemning. I understand all of that. And yet the glory of what Scripture unfolds for you is that the one who said these condemning words, the one who outlined this condemning paragraph to a group of people who no doubt felt the condemnation, is also the good news. He overcomes the bad news because if you will turn from your sin, which is exposed by this principle, and you will place your confidence solely in the cross work of Christ, that is that Jesus died and took sin upon him so that those who trust him can receive his righteousness in exchange. If you'll believe that God has provided an exchange program for you where you can be looked upon as if you lived a perfect life before a holy God and Christ was looked upon as if he lived your wickedness and you'll believe it, you'll turn from yourself and follow him. You will be saved. You will, you will be saved from the guilt and the punishment of your sin. God will receive you. And you'll receive an eternal reward in the presence of Christ, the King Himself. That's the good news for you, unbeliever. All of this should draw our attention back as believers. This should all draw our attention back to our gratitude. And I trust that each one of these paragraphs does that for you. I hope that each one of these, as convicted as we may be, as short as we may fall of the standard of what we see in these portions of Scripture, it should bring us back to the awareness that the cross has rescued us. There is no condemnation, Romans 8 says, for those who are in Christ. Not only are there no condemnation in eternity, there is grace provided. Colossians 2 tells us that today we have grace supplied to us through the gospel to live out what we see in Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. We can live this. This can happen. You can have victory. You can live in victory. You don't have to live in slavery to sin. You've been freed. Don't lean over the fence to your old slave master and let him give you the orders. Turn in faith again in dependence upon God's grace and listen to your master, your new master. Old things have passed away. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, All things have become new. The good news is that there is a Redeemer who rescues hypocrites from their hypocrisy. We've sung about Him already. We've gloried in His redemption. And that must be, again, the centerpiece of our conclusion as we examine our lives before this text. This is the kingdom standard. This is the kingdom warning that's given to us against hypocrisy. And this is an example, an illustration for you to guard your heart when it comes to public displays of righteousness. Those activities that demand a public nature must be done with secret worship of your heart to bring glory and honor to God and to God alone.